Well, thank you very much, uh, Your Royal Highness. It's very kind of you to have popped in uh, on what I know is a very busy program in China. Um, and I think from our conversation earlier with Chairman Liu, um, I genuinely think that you meant what you said, that you'd like to listen to this next bit. Um, but I know that that's not, uh, I know that that's not possible. So on behalf of all of our alumni here, can I wish you a successful visit and thank you for your courtesy in coming to visit us today. Thank you. We're now going to move straight into our first session um, and to talk about uh, the financial markets and financial reform. And we couldn't have a better couple of speakers to help us through that. And I'm delighted on your behalf to welcome Chairman Yuming Kang of the CBRC and Steve Roach, who is Chairman of Morgan Stanley in Asia and who for many years before that was Morgan Stanley's chief economist. Um, it's a particular pleasure for me to welcome Chairman Liu because he and I have worked together closely now for uh, more than a decade, actually. It was when I was chairman of the FSA, uh, and he at that time was a deputy governor of the People's Bank. He came over to London to talk to us about what we were doing and to see what lessons could be learnt for China. And then when I stepped down from the FSA, he was kind enough to ask me to be a founder member of the International Advisory Board of the CBRC, which I have done for the last six years. And that's been a fascinating window onto financial reform in China. The International Advisory Board is treated rather seriously by the CBRC. We were sent, for each meeting, a series of papers. Um, we are asked extremely difficult questions, and furthermore, we are required to answer them. And unlike on typical LSE examination papers, where you can choose the three or four questions you would like to answer, um, he insists that we answer all of them. Um, and so it's a thrill for me today to be able to turn the tables on Chairman Liu for once uh, because what I'm going to do is a very quick review of some dimensions of the crisis which I hope you will find interesting and then to end with a few questions about financial reform uh, in China uh, in the hope that that might stimulate some, uh, some answers. Now, the crisis at the moment... Uh, is in an interesting state uh, because we are emerging, we haven't fully emerged quite clearly, um, and an extensive blame game is underway. Who is responsible in the US? Of course, the main candidates are Mr. Greenspan or Mr. Paulson or Mr. Geithner. Uh, in the UK, there is Mr. Brown uh, or Mr. Brown. Uh, or Mr. Brown, um, uh, but actually, although there is some dispute about who, which individuals may be responsible, I think probably um, we could all agree, and I'm sure the three of us would all agree, that one evident culprit 
is Mr. Leverage. Um, and if you look back at the crisis, one thing on which everybody can agree is that we experienced a dramatic rise in leverage uh, around the world, which is clearly at, at the heart of our problems. Uh, if you look at this, the debt grew in most mature economies really rather rapidly. Um, and uh, the UK uh, and Japan, uh, the UK proudly managed to get up to Japanese levels um, of debt uh, in, by the time the, the peak of the bubble. If we look at it by country, we can see uh, that the UK had overall leverage. This is a combination of financial institutions, households, and government um, of 469% of GDP. That may be slightly exaggerated by the existence of London as a global financial center, but nonetheless, this was fairly uh, dramatic. China, overall leverage, only 159% of GDP. Um, if we look at uh, how this leverage occurred, we can see it occurred in different ways in different places. Uh, in the US, one of the key dimensions was the growth of non-bank leverage. If you look at the uh, right-hand side, uh, the banking system is the light blue, and the non-bank uh, system is the darker blue. These were all of the non-bank credit creation vehicles. Uh, in particular, um, a massive, massive growth in um, the... Sorry, we missed one here. A massive growth in asset-based uh, securitization, which expanded uh, dramatically, particularly uh, from 2002 onwards. Um, if we look at uh, in the Eurozone and in the UK, it was more growth in banking credit. Uh, in the UK, as you can see uh, on the right, the sources of credit uh, and the top bar is actually bank loans. And bank loans uh, expanded uh, dramatically in the last uh, three or four years. So in the UK, it was more bank credit. The US a lot of it was non-bank credit. And then, of course, this huge expansion in leverage and in the assets of the financial system came uh, to a halt in 2007. And for the first time, for a very long time, we saw a reduction in overall size of the financial system, which fell by $16 trillion in 2008 and fell pretty much everywhere. So this is one vivid representation of what happened in the financial crisis. A very consistent, rapid growth in financial assets, albeit different composition in different places, which came to a shuddering halt at the end of 2007. In fact, curiously, um, financial assets fell uh, everywhere except in the UK. Um, which, in fact, still did not see an expansion, a contraction in overall financial assets uh, at that time. But most places, you've seen that financial sector leverage has dropped and fallen below its historic average in most countries. And at the moment, financial sector leverage is overall quite low. And this, of course, is, on the one hand, a good thing in the sense that some of the excesses of the crisis have been corrected. On the other hand, it is bound to be a constraint on the recovery. 
uh, as leverage uh, reduces the ability of the banking system to provide the finance for growth is reduced. These trends and these changes um, had dramatic implications for the global economy. We saw cross-border capital flows in 2008 fall uh, dramatically. Indeed, in one year, fell by um, 80%, uh, which is a remarkable reduction in one year. Things have now started uh, to pick up again. Uh, we don't have the latest, uh, we don't have full figures for 2009. There has been some recovery. But this was a really very sharp shock to the globalization of uh, finance. Now, we've looked at the financial system and what happened in terms of leverage and credit creation, but this was not just a financial system phenomenon generated in the financial world. It reflected uh, growth in leverage of uh, ordinary people. This is what happened to household leverage and debt income ratios uh, in developed countries. And as you can see, particularly sharp rises uh, in the UK and indeed in Spain, um, with UK household debt rising to uh, 160% of GDP from 2000 to 2008, an increase uh, of 50%. And indeed, more rapid increase in the UK even than in the United States, which rose by about a third during that period. And in fact, in spite of this sharp fall I showed you in the scale of financial assets, arguably the deleveraging process has only just begun. This is total debt by country as a percentage of GDP. And although, as you can see in the UK, it has started to fall slightly in 2009, really not very much. And many people would say that this deleveraging process has quite a lot further to go and that this process of deleveraging will, in fact, be rather a strong headwind into which the economy is going to be sailing, which will constrain the pace uh, of uh, recovery. Uh, so a picture where we can see a change in gear in the financial system, uh, but one which possibly has a long way further to go. But if we look at China, here we can see that the banking system remains uh, dominant. So China, in terms of intermediation, is more like the UK than it is like the US. Uh, if you look at the composition of financial assets, China is much more bank-dominated than our other comparable countries, even, say, than India, where 44% of the assets are in the banking system. Um, in China, it's uh, 58. So China is a very heavily bank-dominated financial system still, which, of course, uh, means that the banking regulator has a particularly difficult job because the banking regulator is overseeing a dominant part of the intermediation in uh, the financial system. If you look at where China is in terms of its financial development in relation to economic development, this slide has GDP per capita across the bottom um, and financial depth, which is a measure of the value of bank deposits, bonds and equity as a percentage of GDP, showing that China is relatively sophisticated on that measure, a relatively deep financial sector, 
at around 300% of GDP, um, quite high considering uh, its GDP per head. And you would argue uh, that there is plenty of scope for the financial sector in China to continue to grow. So we have a picture where a massive rise in leverage came to a shuddering halt. It started to unwind, but we don't know by uh, how much. We've seen problems of non-banking credit in the United States. We've seen problems of banking credit uh, in the UK. And we've seen some lessons for everybody um, of regulation which didn't match well the changing shape of financial markets. So let's come to the, finally, to the questions for China. I think now uh, one has to ask, does the overall reform strategy of China need to be rethought? Uh, the Chinese, of course, have been careful never to set out a complete, a final destination of financial reform. But if you look what's been happening, you can see there's been gradual liberalization, gradual introduction of the banks into the financial markets, bringing in overseas shareholders, overseas partnerships, gradual liberalization. Does this direction of change need to be rethought? My hypothesis is that China will continue on a reform path, but that actually the nature of financial markets globally will change, and that some of the broad liberalization trends in other places may be changed to a more cautious approach to regulation elsewhere. So that the model that China is implicitly working towards may well change somewhat in other countries, which could have an impact on China. But that's just one hypothesis. A second question, I think, is what is the appropriate balance between bank and non-bank credit sources in the future? If you look at developments in other countries, you would say that banking might become less important in China and securities markets might grow more rapidly. But Justin Lin, for example, the chief economist of the World Bank, has argued that perhaps in China's system, with still a heavy role of the state in many aspects of the economy, that a bank-based system may in fact be more appropriate for China for a longer period um, than in other countries. I think this is a very interesting question, which is being the subject of lively debate uh, among academics at the moment. How can financial market growth be promoted without generating new imbalances and new risks? And of course, there's plenty of discussion at the moment about China's rather rapid growth in credit over the last 18 months related, of course, to the fiscal stimulus. How long can that be allowed to continue? When will the authorities need to tighten? That's the short-term question. But in the longer term, what kind of controls over credit creation are going to be appropriate in China, which will create a dynamic that supports growth, but nonetheless guards against bubbles and credit expansion of an undisciplined kind, of which we've seen a very vivid example in the global economy. And of course, lastly, underpinning these, what lessons does the crisis offer for regulation, both the content and the structure of regulation? Do we need to rethink our approach to capital in the banking system? There are plenty of ideas around for counter-cyclical measures, for macro-prudential uh, requirements. Are these the future? 
or are they rather overcomplicated and do we need to go back to a simpler approach to controlling the banks? And what does it mean for regulatory structure? We have seen the interplay, complex interplay between different parts of the financial markets uh, during the crisis. Does that argue for more regulatory uh, integration or are we better off with targeted regulators for particular subsectors of finance? These questions are not unique to China. Uh, they are questions that are being asked in other parts of the world uh, as well. Uh, but in China, they are in particular focus, I think, at the present time, given that China is emerging more rapidly from this crisis than other countries. And there are people saying, well, China is already uh, exhibiting worrying signs of new bubbles in credit and therefore needs to think hard straight away um, about how to resolve them. That is my introduction to the debate we're going to have this morning. Um, I've left some questions uh, for Chairman Liu, uh, but I will, since we are in the LSE, allow him to select the questions he wishes to answer. Uh, he doesn't have to answer them all. Um, but thank you for your attention to my brief opening presentation, and I now hand over straight away to Chairman Liu Mingkang. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very pleased to be here. And talking about the future role, we pray. In my view, the efforts we need to make could be summarized as three strengthenings and the three reductions and the three reforms. Talking about the three strengthenings, the first thing we should always bear in mind is to strengthen our basic regulation. For the Chinese banking industries, we have never neglected the beauty and the power of those simple but effective limits, ratios, and targets with respect to the capital adequacy ratio, provisioning limits, large exposure limits, LTD loan-to-deposit ratio, LTV loan-to-value ratio, impaired assets, leverage, and liquidity. Give you three examples. Talking about capital adequacy ratio, and uh, we pay a lot of stress upon the reasonable level of the capital adequacy. That means for large banks, we have 11% requirement at least, and for smaller and the medium-sized banks is 10%. And also, we put a lot of stress upon the quality of the capital. That means at least 75% of tier one capital got to be in common stocks and retaining earnings. And another example, important basic tool we are using is the provision coverage ratio, which is dynamic and uh, currently stands at 165.1%. Quite huge, quite high. The reason why, because we want to provide a strong buffer against the expected losses during the credit boom, booming times. So it's, uh, it's coming up like this. 
and still going like that track. Because uh, what we think is that uh, with uh, a credit booming last year and uh, a quite amount, we were dispersed 7.5 trillion IMB new loans to the economy. We still need more cushions. And in addition, I gave you the number, China has the world's most stringent large exposure limits. That means no more than 10% for a bank's net worth to a single borrower, and the maximum of 15% to a customer group. We also watch closely the changes of non-performance loans in terms of both ratio and the balance, the stock of non-performance loans. Other components of our toolkit include the leverage ratio and the liquidity ratio, specifically require the LTD loan-to-deposit ratio is uh, less than 75%, and uh, core funding ratio 60% today, and liquidity ratio always 25%. Second, we got to be strengthened the corporate governance. I told uh, my colleagues and our regulated bodies, fish never stink from the tail. So please monitor the head office at the first to make sure that corporate governance is good. And um, we have several benchmarks where we check the performance of duty of care and the fiduciary duty from every member sitting in the board and they're sitting in the advisory uh, commission. And uh, secondly, they, we must make sure that uh, within each bank, they have set up a responsibility system and accountability system. And the thirdly, is very important. Uh, from the day when we established the CBRC in year 2003, we make sure that in today's colorful world, we need five wars. We need the firewalls within the group, banking group, and to guard against any conflicts of interest. We need the firewalls between the commercial banks and the capital markets. You can never rely upon the capital markets to fund yourselves because the instruments in the capital markets yesterday, today, and still tomorrow will be more volatile than the stable retail deposits. That's the common sense, but people have short memory. So the corporate governance is very important, talking about firewalls, and then we will check the internal controls, the effectiveness of the internal controls. And uh, also we look at the incentive schemes, uh, including the compensation package, they got to be tested by two common sense tests. One is reasonableness, the other one is consistency. And the last but not least is the dis information disclosure and the transparency. In doing that job, you got to use a consistent accounting practice and the yardsticks. You can never easily swift back and forth between the historic cost approaches or use the fair market value. You got like to be a postage stamp, stick over there and get 
to the end. And uh, third, I think the risk management must be strengthened, and uh, we firmly believe the supervision must be risk-based, and we firmly believe that intensity of supervision to those complicated banks, not only large banks. Banks can never be termed in terms of risk by size. I don't believe that. Small banks, large banks, too big to fail is not true. It's too complex to fail. It's too interconnected to fail. So intensity of supervision will be focused upon the most important banks in our eyes, the most risky, the riskiest banks at first. And second, I think we must arm ourselves with approaches and tools to make sure that we can analyze the risks on a group-wide basis, on a consolidated basis, not a firm-wide. Because nowadays, you know, the wars are blurred, demarcation lines are blurred between the commercial banks and the subsidiaries cross-sectors. You've got to be careful and to make sure that we can see uh, an overview on group-based. And uh, also, we pay a lot of attention to early warning system, and we create our own software system and make sure that we can catch the signals in good time. And the last but not least, enforcement. You can find out the problems, but uh, our staff got to have our teeth. If the regulators haven't got his teeth, it's worthless. It's worthless. It's uh, uh, it's uh, useless. So, with a supervisory philosophy of basic, simple, and useful, our solution are to reduce the complexity and build up firewalls. Now, talking about three reductions. First, we must reduce the toxic assets. A lot of governments are keep pumping the money to save their banks, but without thinking about how to take away their toxic assets. That is something wrong. Prompting that effective treatment of toxic assets is the key to make the banks worldwide functional. Confidence will never back come back unless banks are clean and functional. Second, we need to reduce leverage. The build-up of excessive leverage both on and off balance sheets and the leverage embedded in layers and tiers in the structure of the products with the camouflage of innovation uh, are one of the main causes that have triggered the crisis of that scale. Therefore, we should toughen leverage regulation and give due attention to level playing field concerns. However, the remaining issue today is how to deal with the calibration, including how we determine what credit conversion factor, CCF, should be assigned and used to off-balance sheet items, especially in terms of derivatives, and uh, what methods 
we should use to calculate such exposures, etc. Without concrete answers, the problem will never die. Third, we must reduce reliance on free market dogma. For quite a long time, bankers have been the followers of laissez-faire. For quite a long time, the regulators are pushed by the people who are the followers of the laissez-faire. So we should proactively monitor the markets and take preemptive measures to protect our, ourselves and to the savers, the saving, uh, uh, the, the, the saving publics from being misled and captured by markets. On the other hand, of course, we need to be careful in our market intervention so as to avoid unnecessary costs. Now, three points on reforms for China. What should we do when it comes to reforms of global financial system? I think it's not only for China, but I think that is my basic thoughts to the whole world. First, we need a better map of reform. Everybody's talking about reform, the restructuring of financial regulatory regimes on the reform, uh, the structures, content structures, and so on and so forth. But in my way, I think in my view, first thing first is that we got to have a better map. Namely, we got to have a broad vision. Then we got to have a building block approach, not a piecemeal approach. And the last, we need a good sequence. If we, any of the three is missing, we would run the risk of patching holes all along the way or putting the cart before the horse. Second, the financial infrastructures and markets need to be reformed. A lot of people are talking about the superficial things, but uh, infrastructure is a big, big problem. It would be much more effective if we should, A, build up one set of capital, reporting, and accounting treatments, regardless of what type of financial entities or which arm of the firm holding it. B, set up CCPS as uh, central counterparty uh, clearing centers for OTC derivatives transactions. C, anything or any changes held outside the regulated system would need to be either held on an unlevered basis or backed up by capital provisioning charges. D is ensure the legal clarity and harmonization, especially regarding bankruptcy and the financial counterparties globally. Third, reform should be towards adherence to international supervised standards and strengthen the cooperation across the board. Reforms are essential because capital is always mobile, but the regulation is always local. So the cooperation is very important, especially the quality and timeliness of information sharing, especially when the risks are emerging and institutions are fading. So that is not easy story. 
We need what? We need a political consensus. We need common efforts from supervisors and the regulators, and、uh, we need a well-designed facing sequence. These are very important. Lastly, I'd like to brief you about the three major challenges facing China. First, building up the social welfare system remains a crucial task. Despite of the rapid growth, China is still a developing country. Everywhere you go, you automatically can find out the substantial income gaps between the people along the coastline and the inland provinces, between the people settled on in the urban areas and in the rural areas. So, we got to deepen the reform. To make sure that we can have a better and a fair, stable society, and、uh, also in the meantime, we can reduce the precautionary savings and make our society relying less on indirect financing. I can ease my burdens on my shoulders. I hope someday. Second, restructuring of the industries weighs high on government agenda. The Chinese government is committed to addressing the overcapacity, ensuring the pollution reduction and energy saving. On the one hand, and on the other hand, we got to provide a better service and more credits for, in terms of rural financing and SME financing. Last but not least, the quality of development in China should be highlighted. The quality should never be compromised for seeking a faster pace of growth. In this respect, it remains a crucial task for the Chinese government to carry out further price and taxation reforms, to transform its economic development approach from growth-driven to quality-driven, from resource-intensive to efficiency-driven. From labor-intensive to technology-driven. Looking to the future, what I should say? I will quote an English saying: "Time and tide wait for no man." Let's hurry up. So long as we have common efforts, so long as we have a cool head with a warm heart. I think we can make the future even better. Thank you. Howard, thank you for your kind introduction an hour ago. And、uh, it is really a pleasure to greet so many of you. What a wonderful testament this gathering is, not just to a great institution,、uh, LSE, but also、uh, as a testament to、uh, China's、uh, increasing quality of its stock of human capital. I, I know of no.、Um, 
more important resource that will shape the future of any uh, country or any great economy than the investment uh, that the <clears throat> nation puts in higher education. And LSE is obviously playing a terrific role uh, with respect to um, improving the quality of human capital in China. It's a pleasure to follow my good friend, uh, Chairman Lu Ming Kong, as well, who's raised some very important and provocative uh, questions about the regulatory discipline and philosophy of uh, China. In, in my brief um, 10 minutes, I would like to um, just make a couple of uh, simple points. And that is that in the aftermath of the worst financial crisis and the worst recession in the global economy since the 1930s, it is urgent that we look inside of ourselves and resolve never to let this type of near catastrophic failure happen again and identify the core values that will ensure that we can deliver on that sacred promise. I reject the, um, the notion that the crisis of 2008-2009 was one of these classic once-in-a-century storms, the inevitable tsunami that you just have to prepare for because they always happen. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a cop-out for those who were asleep at the switch. I believe the crisis was really an outgrowth of a series of massive blunders that quite simply did not have to happen. Blunders of regulatory policy, blunders of monetary policy, blunders of political oversight, and yes, blunders of those of us on Wall Street charged with managing risk. Blunders that I would argue that really are deeply rooted in the political economy of growth. The idea that we want growth at any price, irrespective of the consequences. And in this case, the consequences were severe because the growth that we saw in the five years before the crisis was the reflection uh, of a growth, in retrospect, painfully, of an artificial boom. The post-crisis fix must be framed around uh, the frank and honest admission that uh, what we saw in 2008 and 2009 was not the inevitable storm, but a failed stewardship of both the financial system and an increasingly interdependent real economy that was very dependent on the same dysfunctional financial system. What I want to do in just a few slides is just to illustrate two dimensions of the failure and close with some implications of some consequences for China. start with the notion that we failed to address the imbalances that were building 
on the real side of the global economy. This is the real economy. This is the demand side. Consumer demand. You tell me if this is a sustainable configuration for the real economy. Four and a half percent of the world's population on the left is a $10 trillion consumer. On the right, two extraordinary nations, China and India, collectively nearly 40% of the world's population, 10 times the number of people in America, but a combined consumption of 2.5 trillion, one-fourth that of America. America consumed to excess, and you in China and India did the opposite. And yet everyone in the world, Americans, Europeans, the Japanese, you in China, friends in India, you were delighted to go along for the ride. America would consume in perpetuity, and you would produce and make things that we couldn't afford or, in retrospect, didn't need. We failed to attend to our global imbalances. Is this the fault of a 100-year wave, or is this just poor management? We had equal failures with equally devastating consequences in managing our financial system. As Chairman Liu just said very eloquently, we managed our financial system on the basis of ideology, on the basis of presumption, with a lack of metrics and with a lack of values. We had a system of self-regulation that believed in the inherent ability of financial engineers to create very sophisticated and complex instruments that could do everything, intermediate savings into investment and distribute risk all over the world in a very diffuse way uh, that nobody would end up as we say in the U.S., holding the bag, that there would be a diffusion of counterparty risk rather than a concentration of counterparty risk, which might pose a problem to the financial system. You can see for yourself the explosion on the origination side of financial instruments uh, over the, um, uh, the pre-crisis period. The notional value of global derivatives uh, at the end of this period of madness reached um, over 11 times the size of world GDP. In the year 2000, when there was some discussion amongst regulators about controlling derivatives, that ratio uh, was about three times the size of world GDP. What were we thinking? 
And then you in Asia, coming out of the Asian financial crisis, it became very apparent to you that um, it was absolutely essential to build up enormous reservoirs of foreign exchange reserves to protect you in the event uh, of another disturbance. And that strategy worked extremely well, but again, there are consequences because so many of these reserves then had to be recycled back into financial markets uh, in the West with great consequences uh, as, as well. The idea of the financial technology of this brave new world was that we could originate uh, securities and distribute them all over without consequences. Again, no risk, said the ideologues, of a concentration of counterparty risk. How wrong that was. Take a look at what happened. Toxic assets. Just for the banking system globally. The IMF tells us that by the time these assets are written down, we're talking about 2.8 trillion uh, U.S. dollars. So far, we're, we're halfway through the write-down cycle. People tell us, oh, the crisis is over. We are in a post-crisis era. This is the type of pablum that you get fed by self-serving politicians and regulators and central bankers. Did I leave anybody out, Howard? No. Um, and this worries me going down the road, especially with respect uh, to LSE's home country, the UK, where the write-downs have lagged, and in continental Europe, where they've also uh, lagged. America has not done a great job uh, in uh, this crisis. Uh, a lot of people correctly say that the crisis was made in America, uh, and in many respects it was. But our good friends in uh, the UK and um, uh, in Europe were derelict in gobbling up toxic assets that they didn't understand, and they have been much slower than their counterparts in the United States to write them down. The U.S. has written down 60% of its toxic assets. Europe and the U.K., their write-downs are less than 40%. So there's more to come, uh, and the, the ramifications of this post-crisis uh, period, uh, I think, are far from over. So what do we do in looking to the future? I liked what I heard from uh, Chairman Looming Kong. I liked what I heard because I think um, it is critical that we rethink the policy mandates that guide us as regulators and central banks and politicians, that we don't just go for growth and maximum growth, but we go for a disciplined growth that also requires a very clear and determined focus on financial stability. I think that's the missing link in this policy and regulatory and political equation. And I have urged repeatedly uh, central banks and Western uh, governments to explicitly include financial stability 
uh, in the official mandate of their respective central banks, uh, and they haven't listened to a word I've said, which is why I have given up and moved to China. One final point, speaking of China, and Chairman Liu said it very eloquently, and I will just underscore uh, the point he made. And that is that your regulatory structure and design cannot be backward-looking. It must be forward-looking. Because the shift in your growth structure is inevitable, and it is here and now. The Chinese economy is about to undergo a dramatic transition. From the graph on the left, led by exports and investment, to the graph on the right, led by a lagging consumer sector. And along with that transition will come policies that, as Chairman Liu said, will build the safety net. Will provide support to rural incomes and vast new industries in a heretofore untapped Chinese services sector. This will require new regulations, new expertise, new insight, and new analytical tools because your system of regulatory oversight and finance must change in a way that is consistent with the next China, not the old China. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, we've got time for questions since um, my, both our panelists have been very disciplined in their contributions. Uh, so I'll throw it open to the floor in a second. But perhaps I can begin by just uh, a couple of questions of my own. Uh, the first being to uh, Chairman Liu. You talked about the challenges, uh, the reforms, uh, in a very clear way. But one which... One challenge which is attracting a lot of attention uh, in the media is you know, the risk of another bubble in China, asset prices, particularly property prices, as China's growth has recovered quickly. How anxious are you about that prospect, and do you feel you have the tools to deal with the risks of another asset price bubble if one did emerge? Uh, yes, I think uh, we have noticed uh, that challenges because we closely monitor the bubbles uh, of the assets. And uh, because if you look at the price of real estate, the, it changed quite a lot in the past five years and ten years. And um, what we are doing is that uh, we divide the talking of property uh, areas, so we divide that uh, chain of service into three sections because uh, the regulator got to be very simplified. The, the risk profile to all the regulator, regulated institutions. The first is land reclaim. The government set up their platform to buy the land and then make it matured and they're ready to use and then sell them. And uh, we don't worry quite a lot about that point because 
uh, that the exposure is only about 1% of the total loan balance. It's quite minimal. And uh, we gave the guidelines to all the banks and to lower your loan to value, and not a single land piece of land and get uh, more than a half cost, the market cost. It's, uh, it's cha always changing because of fluctuating. So it's 50% and down loan to value. And second, we have the monitoring guidelines that the loan must be traced with the specific land and to make sure that the cash flow will be traced back to your account to repay your principal plus interest due time. And the third thing is that we have a name list system for all the significant banks. And um, because we follow the credit standing and the financial standing of the localities. And so if you can give them the credit line, you've got to follow the name list. It's a dynamic in-house control, back name list, in my words. Mm. And the second is on developed financing. For developer financing, we require all the banks nowadays to look back and make sure that, A, the collaterals must be the buildings, commercial or residential quarters, working progress, not a piece of land. And the B is that to have a good mastery of the loan LTV, loan to value. And it's dynamic according to the market. Because the land price is always on the mark-to-market. It's a fair market value basis. It's fluctuating. So you've got to have more dynamic use of that. And thirdly, also we have a qualification of the developers check. We check their credit standing and their credit track recording, and so on and so forth. And the thirdly is the, the housing mortgage loans, and the commercial and the residential. For mortgage loans in these areas, we have our own weapons. We ask all the banks to have uh, a, you know, we got to have a physical face-to-face -face check all these credit information of the borrowers. And also, you got to at least pay one visit to the house he's buying and he is living at. And also, we divided the demand in two groups, first home and the second and more homes. Mm -hmm. And so you, you got to have different loan-to-value Nowadays is 30% for first home, at least 40% for second home and more. So the down payment is dynamic, and it could be reduced to 20% during distressed time. It will be raised to up to 50 40%. And that is something we are very, uh, very tough.
Last but not least, is that we, in China, we ban such a, the outsourcing the retail businesses like mortgage loans and package them to the intermediaries. Mm. And uh, then you get, uh, you pay them a fee, and uh, then a lot of forgery cases will happen in such a service. Yeah. So all the Chinese banks got to do their homework face to face. So we ask all the Chinese bankers to back to check their due diligence. And uh, those in those volatile market areas, the customer service must be based upon due care, due skills, and the due diligence. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Steve, let me just uh, throw one question at you before I pick up uh, the audience. You talked about, at the end, about the need for rebalancing Chinese economy, showing the pictures on exports and consumption. Um, but there was one thing you didn't mention, which was the exchange rate. Um, we've all read um, recently Paul Krugman uh, saying what he thinks and that the U.S. should declare China a currency manipulator. Um, on the other hand, in today's Financial Times, there's a research note from Société Générale suggesting that China might devalue the renminbi faced with the deficit uh, generated by imports of raw materials. Um, uh, there's no end to the innovativeness of economists uh, producing um, ideas. Where do you stand? Are you, um, are you uh, accusing China of currency manipulation? Was that the implication of your slides? You're a real troublemaker, Howard. <laughs> That's my role here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Oh, look, no, I am not at all. I'm, I'm um, diametrically on the other side of the debate from um, the gentleman you mentioned who won the Nobel Prize in the United States, um, who... Uh, he and I got into a rather contentious debate over the, the media over the weekend. But, but here's the basic, and let me say one thing. The odds of China uh, devaluing the renminbi versus the dollar are a number slightly less than zero. <laughs> the, the issue from America's point of view is, is actually very troubling. The, the United States has an enormous um, unemployment problem, a lot of pressures bearing down on, on wages, uh, and um, they, they want to blame it on China. This is the way the system works. It's a politically inspired motivation because politicians never want to accept responsibility for their creating uh, their own problems. But, but let me just give you a few numbers. In 2008, the United States had trade deficits with over 90 different countries. 90. This is a multilateral problem. It is not a bilateral problem. We have massive multilateral trade deficits because we don't save and we must import surplus savings from abroad in order to grow and run the current account and multilateral trade deficits to attract the capital. The idea of fixing 
a multilateral trade deficit with an adjustment in a bilateral exchange rate, I mean, you tell me, you're the professor. I mean, this is LSE. Does, is this the kind of economics you guys teach at LSE? You can't fix a multilateral problem with an adjustment in a bilateral relative price. You just rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. You shift, you, you could shift the Chinese piece of the deficit to someone else. It would be a higher cost producer that would tax the American workers that the U.S. politicians are trying to fix. And for this, they gave Paul Krugman a Nobel Prize. <laughs> Yeah, I see a hand uh, right over there. You've got a microphone? Yes, yep. I have. Okay, uh, if you could say who you are and... Uh... Peter Cole from Vancouver. We were lawyers for the Titanic, you know. I have a question for Chairman Liu Minkant. You mentioned in Singapore that in North America, it is big will not fall, but in China, is big connections and well connections will not fall. How can you have good corporate governance in China when you have such concepts in the future. Thank you. What, what for? I understand that. Sorry, could you say again? Could you, what you, said could you explain the, the question yes, again? Yes, in Singapore, you mentioned that in China, unlike North America, it is well connections or big connections. The companies will not fall. In North America or in Europe, it's big organizations will not fall. But today, you were mentioning about good governance. Then how can good governance be linked with such concepts? When you know that if big connections, well connections, a company will not fall. Notwithstanding good governance or poor governance. Will, did you say will not fall? Yes. Okay, sorry. Oh. Yeah, will not fall, will not fail, I guess. Will not fail. Too big yes. to fail. Uh, it's, a, it's a question about uh, too big to fail and um, uh, how corporate governance will deal with too big to fail. Okay. Yes, I, I mentioned in Singapore and I mentioned here, I think we have the coherence in my philosophy. That is, um, um, uh, people are talking about uh, the failure of the banks, especially... Uh, significant banks. Uh, we have uh, three things size, complexity, interconnectedness. Not necessarily in that order. But uh, what we believe is that size is uh, not the most important thing. Big banks can have uh, a very beautiful performance and governance as well. And um, AIG is not a very big insurance company in the United States. And Lehman Brothers is not the biggest house in the Wall Street in terms of investment banking institutions. So uh, we cannot superficially term this is a size issue. And uh, talking about the complexity, yes. Interconnectedness, yes. So that's the reason why I stressed in Singapore, everywhere, the firewall is absolutely needed. If you want to run a successful large commercial banking institutions, 
if you want to be responsible for your savings customers, because this is not a security house. Your customers are not investors. Your customers are saving customers. So we got to protect their interest, and that is something different. Coming back to the topic of corporate governance, then the people sitting in the board, and the people play the roles of top management, and if you have a supervisory commission, and those members got to be clear that they must run their businesses with due skills, due experiences, and long commitment. It's different. And this is the key important. You got to know your duty of care, and this is a fiduciary duty. The leverage is very high, and your equity, whatever the buffer and the surcharges, or conventional buffers is. People are talking about those hot potatoes, but it doesn't make any sense. I will tell you. Don't be naive. How high the capital level is. You got to balance the cost. The banks will be efficient to run their businesses, and however high, however high, the level of the capital is, you can still never fight against a crisis of this nature. So the corporate governance means you must make sure that you can draw a boundary for yourself, and within the boundary. We need ambitions, and we need knowledge to nourish that ambitions, and we need the skills of risk management to create the motivation and ambitions. But anyway, the boundary must be over there. How large is the boundary? It depends upon your skills, your experience, and your staffs. Long commitment. This is something coherent, and it's closely linked to the corporate governance. Talking about market practitioners, we must have external enforcement coming from the regulators and supervisors. But by the end of the day, it's working, so long as the good corporate governance exists. Thank you. Thank you.、Uh, yes, woman in the second、uh, row here. Can you、uh, microphone? Yeah, it's on its way to you. Hello, hi.、Uh, I'm Isabella from Hong Kong.、Uh, I have a question for、uh, Chairman Liu.、Um, As、uh, we understand, in 2009 we have a, a very、um, aggressive uh, uh, monetary uh, stimulus, and、uh, we see a very uh, large uh, loan growth in 2009. So that's why we pro-、uh, all the banks right now they are、uh, quite aggressive to uh, uh, raise capital to provide more buffer、uh, for the capital position, and also.、Uh, 
recently, ICBC previously they announced that they, they have no uh, capital raising plan, but yesterday they announced their capital raising plan. So actually, I expect there will be more um, uh, such kind of uh, issues coming out for all the Chinese banks. And I'm wondering, uh, for the given uh, Basel III, um, a new policy coming out, uh, how does CBRC uh, cope with that? And do you think 11% uh, car ratio for large banks is sustainable? And also 10% for uh, SME banks, uh, whether it is sustainable? Because we have seen uh, Hong Kong banks, their car ratio can be quite high, like uh, 16%. So uh, can you comment on that? And also another question is on the... No, 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 that's enough. <laughs> Wrong question. <laughs> Thank, okay. you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. And um, as I mentioned that we have our own benchmark for capital requirement. Uh, as I mentioned, talking about the capital adequacy, uh, it's not only the level of the capital. It's the quality of the capital. Because what you need is that something to digest the risks ongoing concern basis, not ongoing concern basis. So that's the reason why we have the highest requirement benchmark for core tier one capital. And we ask all the banks to hold at least 75% stock, common stock, plus retaining earnings to form the tier one capital. And that in Nowadays, the whole the banks, the tier one, core tier one capital is about 80%. So we have 75% minimum. Looking ahead, and we have, we're closely working with CIRC, and all these banks have already solved the problem to have a sustainable increase of their capital in the markets and that we have uh, concrete approaches, and each bank have different approaches. So treat uh, the same benchmark in the market to regulators, this is the key. Differentiation is the key. And we must uh, think about individuality and the differentiation. And uh, all these concrete approaches to increase their capital and raise the quality of the capital in the future will be disclosed fully on their prospectus to the markets. Thank you. One uh, on the front here, yeah. Is this working? Yeah. Uh, Chairman Liu, uh, Herr Darling, uh, Stephen, hello. Uh, I'd like to raise a quick question for Stephen, actually. I think one of the aspects you've both covered incredibly well, the issues around the crisis, um, but I think one aspect was missing, which was the question of competition. I think one of the key issues in the financial crisis was that we saw competition strongly encouraged between the banks at consumer financing level to improve consumer lending opportunities and expand home ownership both in the States and the UK, notably, to people who probably couldn't afford or perhaps shouldn't have been encouraged to take on mortgages. Uh, and secondly, I think at the banking level, we saw fierce competition between the banks at the wholesale level to improve their return on equity 
um, and hence this led to a lot of the derivatives and um, uh, off-balance sheet activities that you touched on, Stephen. So two quick questions. One, Stephen, how do you think the uh, policies going forwards around competition between banks may evolve uh, and what would your recommendations be? And for Chairman Liu, I wonder, I think China has uh, set a shining example in its regulatory system over the last few years. And I wonder how you see the role of Chinese banks going globally, going forwards. Thank you. Steve, please. Well, I I think you describe um, some important characteristics of the... um, the pre-crisis period, I'm not sure I would really use the word competition um, the the way you did. Um, There was a clear uh, political uh, value imposed on the structure of home ownership and mortgage finance in countries like the United States, which made it very clear that they wanted to raise home ownership uh, to Uh, areas of the income distribution that heretofore had not had access to to that possibility. And out of that, uh, because of um, a lack of regulatory oversight uh, and um, what I believe were um, uh, interest rates that were far, far too low, you created this subprime uh, phenomena with exotic uh, mortgage interest um, uh, instruments uh, that then got um, you know the, the zero interest rate negative amortization floating rate mortgages that then got incorporated into these exotic instruments that then got distributed all over uh, uh, the world um, is, it, is it competition or is it inherent human nature when you uh, when you give somebody uh, a home uh, with no, basically no strings attached and they don't have to document their income uh, and they get a cheap mortgage rate for a while and they don't know that the mortgage rate's going to go up at some point, if they're uneducated, unfortunately, they'll do it. Um, is it competition or is it just uh, uh, human nature? I think the lesson from this is that we went too far in trying to um, uh, push this whole notion of home ownership into uh, unfortunate, um, the hands of the unfortunate uh, people who were not prepared to deal with the consequences of it. Again, I think I I would not blame uh, the borrowers. Um, I, I would blame the lenders and I would blame those charged with overseeing uh, this reckless uh, process uh, of, um, of mortgage lending. Chairman Liu, the, yes. the overseas role of the yes. global role of Chinese right. banks? Right. Could, could I add one point sure. to yeah, uh, your first question? And uh, I fully understand the merits of the competition, but uh, I fully understand the shortcomings of Me Too policy. So in talking about competition, you must understand you want to compete with other people in which area. And if you have competitive advantages over there, 
It's not a me too policy. And、uh, competition is only a slice of your bank. It's not the entire pizza. Okay. And、uh, the sequence, I mentioned the sequence. The sequence in nourish the strategy of competition is must be like that: morality first, profit second. Okay, morality first, competition second. Back to your question, direct to me.、Um, it's very simple. Wherever they go, domestic or global, it's commercial decision making. We respect their decision making. I just ask them and tell them three English sayings:、uh, find the mirrors first, then turn the mirrors to the windows. Find the mirrors to look at yourself, to find the dirty spots on your head, face before you can turn the mirrors to the windows. And go away. Second, many men, many hands. Yes, many men, and many minds. If you have this and that in Asia, in Europe, in U.S., I want to acquire this. I want to buy that because we have adequate capital, and we are strong. We have the. Being far away from the crisis this time, but、um, you got to think about that. Can you get to the synergies from different areas? And、uh, thirdly, I think there's a saying: East or West, whom is the best? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We're we're、uh, we're running short of time, so I'm going to wind up. There's been a bearded economist at the back waving and wanting to ask Steve Roach a question, but I'm not going to have time to take him.、Um, I have one question, however, to Chairman Liu, which Alistair Darling has asked me to ask you.、Um, we currently have a vacancy as Chief Executive of the Financial Services Authority. Is there any chance we could persuade you to come to London? <laughs> Thank you. I will be. I will be think about that. You'll think about it. Very good. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to Steve and to MK for coming this morning. It's been a great start to the forum. We're going to break now for 15 minutes. You're allowed a cup of coffee, but you have to be back by 11:30 because the next class starts then. Thank you very much.